0: With you. I, I bet you'd love to hear how I spent my summer vacation. Um, and, and I'll tell you about that. Nothing more fun than hearing an old man stand up and share his medical stories. Uh, and uh, I've just got a brief part of that to share with you. But but I'm so grateful to be here with you and to be able to, more importantly, to bring God's Word to you and to talk about Jesus, to, to make much of who He is, to worship God for who He is and what He's done. And, and uh, as Pastor Nathan said, we're going to do this a little differently today. We're kind of inverting the order of how we normally do the worship service And it's intentional because of the particular psalm that we're going to study together, we're going to look at together, Psalm 136. As you know, we're in this series uh, uh, for the next couple of weeks about uh, the psalms uh, that is, is going to come and go. Last week, Pastor Sean talked to us about a song of ascent That the children of Israel would sing as they were going up to the temple to worship. Today I'm going to talk to you about Psalm 136, which is one of the psalms that they would sing uh, once they got into the temple to worship. And I love this psalm for a lot of reasons. One of which is, this psalm is kind of foundational to the whole philosophy of worship that we have here at Northland. Because what it is, it's a song, a psalm, a song, about worshiping God for who he is and what he has done. It's essentially that. The entire psalm is is telling who God is and what God has done. And it has this refrain that repeats itself within the psalm of his love endures forever. And what an amazing thought for any of us to have in a world that we live in, a world that can seem very temporary and can be derailed by the slightest thing, you know, to know that there is something that endures forever. And it is God's love. God himself, the essence of who God is, is love. He is love. And so to know that because God endures forever, his love endures forever. And if God is within us, then not only will we endure forever uh, with him in eternity, but that comes all the way back to right now. Because forever, here's a cool thing about forever, forever is both forward and backwards, meaning that everything in our past, God has brought into the redemption of our future, and we celebrate that right now. So that indeed is a reason, his faithfulness is a reason Together, together, and to celebrate and be thankful for uh, this great love that he has for us. And I do want to unpack this psalm a bit with you. But before I get there, a couple of things that uh, I just want to uh, tell you about. One is, uh, like everyone has been, we've been praying for the folks up in the panhandle of Florida uh, as well as those other six or seven states that have so been affected by Hurricane Michael. Uh, we know that many of you have loved ones. Some of you are from that area. And uh, we've heard from a lot of you who uh, are saying, what are we going to do in response to that? We've already been in touch with a couple of resource uh, folks there who we think we can partner with in, in taking you know our mobile kitchen and our disaster response team uh, to the region, and uh, Judy Head, Joe and Judy Head, who who lead that uh, disaster response ministry, and so many of you who are volunteers in that, remember all too well last year, just just a little earlier than this time, we were dealing with this here in our own community, so we know something about it, but, but we've been told, as you've seen the same reports, the devastation there is just incredible, and so we're... Um, Yesterday morning, I, I was in contact with uh, the United Methodist Church. has a disaster response ministry in that in, in the Panhandle in Lower Al- La, Lower Alabama, and um, we I was we were in touch. I was in touch with him. Judy was as well, and we think this is going to turn into an opportunity for us to be able to serve right there on the ground. And thought it might be appropriate, just given. Uh, all the news that we see and what we hear from there to just take a moment as, before we move into our, our teaching time to pray for those folks up in that region. So would you join me? And the other thing is there's a middle school retreat going on this weekend. Uh, just ending about now, and uh, Dave and some others know all too well the joy of a middle school retreat is unparalleled. And uh, so, um, just praying for those uh, students as they finish that up, and especially the counselors who have been with them all weekend uh, as they come back to collapse in their, on their sofas today. But um, would you just pray with me, and then we'll get into this teaching together? Father we're we're so thankful for your love it's a love that is steadfast that endures forever a love that has everything to do with everything we would hope to do and it's your love that compels us to take middle schoolers to a retreat and and want to pour the word of god in them and i thank you for the men and women who have gone with those students and are uh, spending this weekend with them, would you bless them as they uh, wrap that up this morning and and, um, that many students' lives will be changed for the rest of their life as a result of being there together. Also, Lord, we want to ask for your help and your discernment as a church as we think about how we can do what we think you did and we know you did. You showed up in the most difficult places Uh, in people's lives and situations, and we believe that's what the church is called to do, and we want to show up in the right place at the right time. So would you give Judy and her team great discernment as they make that decision? Um, We pray for the people in that region. Uh, We hardly know where to begin, uh, except to, again, ask that your peace would be Prevalent there, And that they would have the basic resources right now that they need. Thank you for all the first responders uh, that are already there. And we pray for the families that have lost loved ones. We pray that uh, you would be with them. And, and again, that, that your peace would be passed through your people who are uh, on the ground there. And eventually some of our people here will be there to serve alongside them. But bless them and be with them this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is an exciting season. I always love college football. I I just want to remind you of the University of Central Florida Knights, which are undefeated. God is on the throne and his people will prevail. I'm, I think it's just, I'm pretty excited about this. You know, my wife is a graduate of the University of Central Florida. Yeah, of which she has reminded me for years. And I'm like, eh, you know, no big deal. Not Kentucky, you know. And uh, and now, all of a sudden, she's saying, why is it such a big deal to you? You know, and I, I'm just so proud. She's here somewhere in the room. Uh, Connie, I'm just so proud of your education that you, you got there. And it's so proud of what you accomplished in your years at UCF. And uh, so, but anyway, it is a pretty big deal. And um, I know that you probably have a team that uh, maybe it's not a football team. Maybe it's our, our great soccer team that's not playing so well right now. But, uh, you know, it's, it's great to have this kind of excitement in the fall as we see these kind of sports. And, and it's amazing to me when I watch uh, football, not saying I spent a lot of time yesterday, but I did spend a little time yesterday and last night watching football. And it's, it's always amazing to me uh, the enjoyment there is of people, you know, the old story of, you know, people sitting in the stands desperately in need of exercise, you know, watching 22 people on a field desperately in need of rest, you know, uh, watching one another. And uh, I'm one of those people on the sofa. But um, all that to say, uh, I spent some time on the sofa this summer. I, a funny thing happened, um, I was uh, in Seattle and I was uh, working on a project that is, is very dear to our hearts here at Northland uh, with First Aid Arts and also with International Justice Mission and thought I would be there for, I would come and go some this summer from there. And um, a funny thing happened. And before I tell you what exactly happened, because I know you're dying to hear the whole story, uh, but this great quote of Anne Lamott's has, has just kind of stuck with me through this whole summer. And where she wrote in a little book she wrote on prayer, a real short little book, is she wrote, if I were going to begin practicing the presence of God for the first time today it would help to begin by admitting the three most terrible truths of our existence, that we are so ruined, and we are so loved, and we are in charge of so little. I love that statement. We're so ruined, we're so loved, And we're in charge of so little. And coming into the presence of God, all three of those things should be pretty clear to us. Isn't it amazing how you make your plans, I make my plans, and the slightest little thing happens. And we get completely derailed from what we thought we were going to be doing and where we thought we would be, and we're in charge of so little. You know, my uh, little adventure began... This summer, with you know, I had come back in June and preached, and went back to Seattle and working on this project, and I was walking to dinner. I was—we were hosting some uh, friends of ours from Brazil who had come to Seattle that have been instrumental in helping us with a network of churches in Rio and São Paulo down there, and they were in in Seattle, and and uh, we were going to dinner, and as we were walking to dinner one night. Um, not that I've tracked it, it was July 15th, and we were walking to dinner, and I realized I was beginning to lose vision in my left eye, and I called my friend, Dr. Joel Hunter, not the preacher, he's my friend, but the the ophthalmologist, and I called Joel, and I said, Joel, I got, you know, I got something going on in my eye, I'm going to, Get on a plane tomorrow and come back, and like for you to see me. I'm, I'm telling, I'm arranging his schedule for the week. I assumed I was in charge of his schedule, you know. If I had a need, and so I said, like for you to see me tomorrow, and and he said, well, you need to go to an emergency room, and I said, mm, sorry, can I got to go to dinner, you know, because <laughs> um, I got some Brazilians here, you know. And so I go on to dinner, you know, and in continuing to lose some vision. I go, but I come home and it's late here in Florida because uh, three, I don't know if you knew this, nobody told me before I went out. It's like they changed the clocks out there. It's three hours earlier. And so uh, it was late when we got back. And so Sunday morning, I get up and I call Joel and I said, Hey, so you know, the thing I was telling about. And he said, You're still not in an emergency room? I was, No, I'm not. He, and so, long story short, went to emergency room. Detached retina. Next day, uh, they fixed, they did a surgical procedure, put a gas bubble in my eye, and said, Don't get on an airplane because if you do, that bubble will increase and expand, and it will be unpleasant for you and for the person seated next to you on the plane. And so uh, I was somewhat grounded in Seattle. It was not a bad place to be grounded. It wasn't like I suffered. Um, Through some friends of ours, we had a really wonderful place to stay right downtown Seattle. And... um, it was awesome I was able to work with it with the team that I went out there to be with and worked every day with them and uh, because they everything was right downtown and so the project that we were hoping to complete by September 18th we actually did and so uh, we were very thankful for that I the relationships that we have with those folks are very important we use this material in our correctional facilities and Jamila and others use it in juvenile corrections and and many other programs that we do, International Justice Mission, an organization we've partnered with here for 20 years, uh, working on a specific thing with them. And, and that also was just, we, I was able to still do those things. And, and that's, that's just a great gift. I'm, I'm a little nervous walking in crowds because I, I uh, don't have a lot of peripheral vision. And so if you come around me and I get a little jumpy, you'll know why. Um, but I'm doing fine, I had no pain, it was just an inconvenience, but it did derail my life. I, all of a sudden things that I thought I was in charge of, I realized I was not in charge of. And it felt like I was ruined as a result of that. And, and part of the thing though that I was, that I really value being in charge of is setting my own agenda. Does that frustrate you to be around people like me? Probably, you know, that, that I like to just kind of determine the way things are going to go moment, mo- second to second in my life, you know. And, and that was not to be the case this summer. And so uh, we, for the most part, uh, I was able to work every day, but I had these continuing appointments with a doctor that I really came to uh, really appreciate at the University of Washington Medical Center and, and uh, so I had, Connie, we were there together but then all she just, she came back to Florida, left, just left me by, by myself <laughs> there. Uh, she's somewhere here in the room but uh, I understand now, Connie, and I, I've worked through it but no, she, she really, <laughs> she's, gonna, she's not gonna be happy with this. Uh, I don't even know why I'm doing it. I, you know, the... I think because I can't actually see you, it's sort of like I'm, (laughs) I'm rehearsing here or something, you know. But um, so I, Connie really came back to take care of some things I was I was supposed to be doing here in Florida. She she came back, but I. It's okay because man, I became an Ubermeister. Uh, I mean that that means one thing in German, but. I, I really, be, you know, Uber was my friend. In fact, I don't want you to feel bad about yourself when I tell you this, but I have an amazing Uber rating. My Uber rating is 4.91. Don't feel bad about yourself. Uh, you know, it's because I'm such a great Uber rider. You know, I'm, you know I've, I've actually seen some of the reviews that Uber driver, you know, that I, I'm pleasant and, and I, I talk, I speak just enough, I don't, I don't over-talk, you know, I don't overshare in the car, you know, and when I'm following the map with the driver, you know, to see the destination we're going to, and, and I'll only mention a wrong term maybe one time, you know, oh, too bad we missed that right back there, you know, I say it very gently and kindly, and so it, it endears me, no doubt, but I have a four-point... I don't know if I mentioned it yet, 4.91 rating on Uber, which means that almost every time I get into an Uber car, uh, which I racked up a lot of rides this summer, You know, I'm almost always given water, most of the time in a bottle. And I mean, so it's, you know, it's, I just get great treatment as a result of having that rating. I don't, again, don't beat yourself up for this. Uh, It took me some time to get there. It'd take you some time to get there. But so anyway, I I was, I had Ubered up to this eye doctor appointment and uh, finished the appointment, came back out, uh, summonsed an Uber to come and pick me up. And I'm at the corner of 9th and Jefferson in Seattle, Washington, and so it's very clear on the map where I am. I can see up close pretty well. And so I'm looking, I summons this driver, and I'm standing there, and I've I've waited three or four minutes, and and for a 4.91, you don't want to, you shouldn't have to wait more than four or five minutes ever, you know, and so... um, I'm waiting there for my driver and he's not showing up and not showing up and I'm watching him. You, know, you, can, you guys have used Uber. You, know, you can see where they are and I'm seeing that he's everywhere but where I am. He's, he is all over the place, all over the University of Washington area, you know, and who lost last night by the way, uh, well never mind. Um, so um, you know, he's not coming to get me and so I'm, I'm starting, you know, 10 minutes go by, 12 minutes go by you know the weather there was horrible i mean it was 68 degrees and you know sunny and i mean that's cold for a florida boy i mean you know so i'm standing outside you know waiting so i'm at the corner anyway i call this uber driver and uh he answers the phone and he's and when he answers he's very frustrated and he says where are you well, you know, you don't want to be asked that question by someone who's supposed to be coming to pick you up. You know, and and I gently told him that. You know, I said, You see where I am, right on your app. I've seen the app in your in those cars, you know. I'm at the corner of ninth and Jefferson, right where I said I would be. I'm there. Where are you? I thought maybe if I did that punctuated kind of thing, he would understand me better. And and so and he says, well, I can't find you. And I said, well, I see why, because you're driving all around this place, and I'm at one place, and, and I haven't moved. And he's frustrated. He's very frustrated with me. And some other things, we exchanged some other words, but the point is, he, he eventually, he got to where I was, picked me up, and when I got in the car, I don't know, I just thought things would change, you know, that... Okay, that w- we that happened, you know, awkward, you know, uh, but now I'm in your car, I'm waiting for my water, you know, and um, and we'll go. You'll drive me the ten blocks back down to where I'm staying, you know, and and the only thing is that's not what happened. I mean, um, he continued to be very frustrated with me. I mean, he's he's he's. I think it's safe to say he was yelling. I mean, he was saying why did you keep moving around? And I said, I I didn't move around. I stood at the corner of 9th and Jefferson. And and one of the things he had asked me to do was to walk two blocks to where he was. And once I got in the car, I explained to him, you understand, this is not how this system works. You know, um, that, I don't know, maybe you're new. Maybe you don't realize I'm a 4.91. But um, the system works with you Coming, I go to a designated location, you come there, pick me up in your car, hand me a bottle of water. That's how this works. You know, it doesn't work for me to go, (laughs) it doesn't work for me to come to where you are. And he was, he said, Now I've spent more time trying to find you than it's gonna, than I'm gonna make taking you to where I need to get you. Well, so sorry. Yeah, I mean, what, I said that. I mean, not quite that sarcastic, but closely. I said it pretty much like that. And, and I said, what, would, what could I have done? You know, I went to the place where I said I would be. You weren't there. You, you know, what could I have done? And he continued to not be able to give me an answer to that. He just continued to be frustrated with me, which in turn, I realized, this is not a good transaction that's going on here. And I don't want to be in, and I said, I don't want to be in your car anymore. I want you to pull over and I'm going to get out. And he said, we're in the middle of six lanes of traffic. You know, and I said, yeah, and I'm half blind, you know, so no problem anywhere there. Um, and I said, well, you know, and we continued to discuss this. And before you knew it, we were at my destination. and, and it was not a, ple- it was, we didn't exchange pleasantries, I'll just put it that way, as, as I got out of the car. And I think if it hadn't been for that ride, I would be a 5.0 Uber rider, uh, and he might still have a job, I don't know. But um, we, it was a difficult thing, and I tell you that to say that when you're headed for a destination, who is taking you there makes all the difference In the world, does it not? And so if we are headed for a destination and who is taking us there makes all the difference in the world. When you hear that song, what's love got to do with it? Well, it has everything to do with it. Did you, I just, again, I just love, I've been thinking about that song all this week. You know, Michelle told me this great story about what's love got to do with it. She was a very young woman, and she was at the Grammys in 1984 when Tina Turner won the award for vocal performance, best song, all those awards. Michelle, young Michelle Alexander, then Lindahl, was at those Grammys, and she told me all about that, that story, and it's fascinating. That song, though, is an interesting twist, and it really is kind of in contrast, not not a corollary, but contrast to where this psalm goes today. That's why I called this sermon that. What's love got to do with it? In the song, love is called just a secondhand emotion. That love really doesn't have anything to do with, um, with anything. It's just, you know, in the song, it's logical, it's physical. You know, that's what they're saying in the song. And so uh, what's love got to do with it, I thought... How unique that that would be the thing that most of us would think about in trying to hold off relationship. When God calls us into relationship, love has everything to do with it. Love has all to do with it. And in fact, the psalm that that we're going to look at is one that reminds us of, of how significant this was to the children of Israel to think about the love that God used to guide them to their destination. This psalm actually is also the philosophy of worship for Northland as, and uh, that we respond to who God is and what he has done. And so when you read this psalm, what the children of Israel would do, would they would go to the temple, they would get inside, and then they would begin to remember together. They would sing this, and usually there would be one of the Levites, one of the worship leaders would be up in front of them and and would sing the first line to this song. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And the people would sing back, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords his love endures forever. To him who who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. And on and on it goes. 26 verses there are here. Every verse has this same line in it. His love endures forever. The word here for love that is in this psalm a Hebrew word that we cannot bring to uh, English definition very easily without using multiple words. The word is actually chesed. It's a word that you almost have to sound like you're clearing your throat to say it correctly. And, but it's chesed. It's a love that's enduring, steadfast, loyal, favorable, extends favor. It's responsive. It's action. It's participatory. It's a love that It requires a response. It's a love that's so powerful that even when it's extended to us, for it to be completed, we have to receive this love for it to truly be this Hesed kind of love. It's a love that God demonstrated toward His people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, and to us, He extends it to us, even when we are dead in our own sin. He extends this same kind of love. Our response to it is to just receive it, is to receive this love. And in so doing, the the action is completed. It's not a second-hand emotion. It is our first response to who God is and what he has done. And it's scattered throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Psalms. There are other Hebrew words, For love in the Old Testament. But this word in particular is a steadfast word. It means this love is not shaken by actions or circumstances in the world. This love is not shaken by being taken out of the control of the things that you think you're in control of. This is a love that will persevere and that will never ever be shaken by anything his love endures forever. And it's this love that I want you to have this picture in your mind that this is the love, this is the God, this good God is who is taking us on this journey together to our destination. And it makes all the difference in the world who is taking you to your destination and how much love and trust and faith you have in the one who is taking you there. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're a 4.91, which I realize you're not, and I am, but it doesn't matter that you are or not. It doesn't matter your rating, because when we come into the presence of God, we're all five. We're all, you know, we're fives. You know, he sees us that way. As we receive this love, this Hesed steadfast love, and so, what I'm going to do in um, as quickly as I can, uh, I'm going to go through. I'm not the psalm so much because what we're going to do is we're going to respond to this teaching with some by worshiping God for who He is and what He's done. So there will be some music, but we're going to do it at the end of our service. That and it's a way for us to respond because again, this Hesed love requires a response. But in this psalm, Psalm 136, there are three stanzas in the song that actually describe the meta narrative of the gospel itself, the grand story of God, which is why we're here today to hear who God is and be reminded of what God has done. That grand story really does have three stories within the meta narrative, within the grander story. And you could summarize it a number of ways, but here's one way. This psalm summarizes that grand story with three events essentially, long events, but events in the life of God's people creation, deliverance, and destination. The first part of Psalm 136 is about creation itself because it's the first way that God revealed his love to the world was by creating the world. You know, the way you reveal love is by creating an environment where that love can be known and experienced. And you know, lots of, lots of relational examples of that. But what God did, in even a metaphysical way, was he created the earth, the universe, and all that it contains, and it was an expression of his love. It was a way for his, him to show us his love. And you know the story. In creation, God created the world and all that it contained. And there's another great Hebrew word that is used in Genesis that when it was created God looked at it, stood back, looked at it, and said, oh, that's just like I pictured it. The word in Hebrew is tov, T-O-V. I love that word, tov. It's just like I pictured it. Have you ever had something in mind, whether you were building a house or writing a term paper or creating a spreadsheet or arranging the perfect date, and at the end of it you look at, you stand back and, and say, That's tove. just like I pictured it, just like I dreamed it would be. God actually said that about the world. And when he made man and woman, he said it was really tove. It's very good. And so this very good and trustworthy God created the world and all it contains. To show us an expression of his love. And in the first part of this psalm, after we acknowledge how good God is and how powerful God is, it goes right into creation. And the children of Israel would, say, would hear this, these lines sung that he created the world and all that it contains. His love endures forever. They would hear that over and over to be reminded over and over of what God had done. Well, creation itself can take a lot of different forms and as i talk about even these three things this morning i'd love for you to think about so how does this show up in my life because if it was relevant then it's relevant now the bible is living and active it's still working it's still relevant and so creation is not something that happened once and it's over Creation is something that is ongoing. It's still going on. God is still creating each day. He's creating each thing in it. He's creating his mercy new every morning. And creation can take a lot of different forms. And so what I thought might be interesting would be to use scripture to help us understand scripture in this case. And to give you an example of what I think... Uh, Just one brief story about creation that's a different expression of creation itself. And the story happens in all the Gospels, but in Mark chapter 5, let me just set the scene for you of what is getting ready to happen here. Jesus is a rock star at this point uh, he and his disciples and all of his followers everywhere they go I mean they're packing out every house that they go to everywhere Jesus goes there are crowds following him Jesus is somewhat selective in the thing it appears that he's somewhat selective in the miracles he does because he doesn't want the miracles to replace the life instruction that he's trying to give in the process. Did you ever notice that if that miracles just kind of overwhelm and, and supersede everything, but if God wants to teach us something just day to day, that's a different kind of thing for us. And it's usually how God will teach us. Occasionally miracles come along, and thanks be to God when they do. But usually it's in the day-to-day journey that God teaches us of himself. And so, on one of those journeys, in Mark chapter 5, crowds were pr- following him. Jesus had just been asked to come to, to attend to a very sick little girl that was the daughter of Jairus, who was a very important man in that region. And this little girl, uh, I'll uh, tell you the end of the story, but uh, Jairus' daughter dies. Jesus raises her from the dead. But on the way, which is awesome. You know, but on the way there, there, the crowd is pressing in on him. And there was a woman in that crowd, a woman who had a medical condition that the Bible refers to usually as an issue of blood, meaning what it means. And you, you get it. And which would have made her not only ceremonially, religiously, within the religious structure that they lived under at that time would have made her unclean uh, ceremonially, but it also made her a social outcast. No one, especially no man, would want to get near her because then he would be unclean as a result. And so this woman lived her whole adult life Dealing with this issue of being an outcast and and having people grimace whenever she would come around. And so she didn't, was not touched, nor would she touch anyone. But then Jesus came through and she found the courage to touch the hem of his garment. And I have the scripture to put up in front of you, but I'm just going to paraphrase it. Because what happens is Jesus, he realizes that power has gone out from him. and, And he says, who touched me? Someone touched me because I felt the power go out from me. And what that power was that went out from him, he knew, but he was wanting to put this into, he wanted to make this personal with the person that had just touched the hem of his garment. And so the, and he said, who touched me? And the disciples said, there are people all around you. You know, how, how could we possibly know who touched me? But, but they find this woman, Jesus kept looking around. Jesus didn't quit looking for this person. And he saw the woman. And it says, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, because she thought she had done something very wrong. Turns out, she told him the whole truth, and she had done something very right. She trusted the goodness of God because his love endures forever. She had probably heard those words and here she experienced them. But really the point of telling you this story is what Jesus said to her. He called her daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you Go in peace and be freed from your suffering, daughter. Imagine that. If you had been someone who never could get close to anyone, and then you hear that word spoken to you, and you realize the love with which those, that word, that name, that identity, something is created when that happens something is created with your words when you speak them to others something is created when you speak respect when you speak love something is created when we decide we're gonna love and not hate one of the most difficult things that jesus said in the new testament i think we're having the hardest time with right now in our culture and that is love your enemies love your enemies you say so explain how to do that i can't how do how do we do that who's your enemy you know, the person who you don't agree with politically. I mean, right now, midterm, these elections, you know, my goodness, the words. I'm not going to extrapolate this thing out. You get the point. But, you know, the words we speak make a difference. It creates something. The words we speak, because we're made in the image of God. And so what we speak, what we say to another, we either create or we destroy by our words. I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I'm not saying this like I've figured this all out and I'm here to tell you about it today. I'm just saying we create or we destroy with our words. God has chosen to create and to love with his words. And this story is one of so many in the Bible, that just bears this truth out. Because his love endures forever. And by the way, he is in charge of everything. The second stanza in this psalm is one of deliverance. You might know the story that the Hebrew people had been promised um, all kinds of blessing by God. Including a land that they would inhabit. And they are taken into captivity. They're in bondage. They're in slavery. And they so want to be delivered. And God appoints a leader, Moses, to come and lead them out of that captivity. And in Psalm 136, line by line, they kind of retell that journey of being set free from the captivity they were in. And as they tell the story, they only tell a little piece of the story before they say, his love endures forever. Because it's just, you think it's too good to be true, but it's true because his love endures forever. And that kind of deliverance is not just something that happened to them then. It's ongoing now. There is a kind of deliverance that happens You know, we are a church that believes in deliverance. We are a church that believes that people should be free because that's what the church should believe, that there should not be bondage, and it's a result of the fall of creation. It wasn't the plan of creation. And so deliverance is something that God has set in motion, and all of the earth is groaning and straining for this deliverance to take place. And there's many stories in the Bible that tell us about deliverance and there are the obvious ones like the children of Israel being set free out of the land of Egypt. There are some that are not as obvious but are as significant in terms of understanding deliverance. And the one that I want to just quickly share with you is in my, Matthew 19:16. It's, it's about a man who came to Jesus and asked him this, this question. He meant it as somewhat a rhetorical question, I think. He says, uh, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? This young man is in, in some of the gospels is referred to as the rich young ruler. Because he was rich, and he was young, and he was a ruler. And so, a rich, young ruler. Uh, and because he was rich, and because he was young, and because he was in charge of something, or, or a lot of things, you know, he probably was the kind of man that if he said something needed to happen, it happened. He could tell people what to do, and, and usually it was just a matter of, well, I can get that done, and so maybe he had heard Jesus teaching. We don't know. We know he was in the crowd. I don't know, we don't know exactly what he had heard, but something Jesus said. Or maybe Jesus was just a celebrity in the area, and he was a rich young ruler, and he just wanted to hang out with the celebrities in the community. And so goes to Jesus, says, Tell me a deed to do and that I can have eternal life. And Jesus did what he often does. He tried first and foremost to deliver this man from the misperception that he had about what's good in this world. And so instead of saying, telling him a deed, he, you know, he said, well, why do, you call me, why do you ask me about what is good? In another gospel it says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. And maybe he paused there. I'm here, I'm watching my own movie here when I see this story, so are you. Because it would have been a natural thing for if he said there's only one who is good. If somebody said that to me, there's only one who is good, I think I would say, who's that? Who's the good one, you know? And Jesus would say, the one whose rating is 4.0. Po- no, Jesus would say, well, only God is good. You know, that's the right, if you really want to know the right answer, that's the right answer. But Jesus said, well, why do you say, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. But then he, goes, he realizes that that's not resonating. And so he goes on and says, if, um, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And, in, and then to which the rich young ruler said, which ones Well, that's not a good question, you know, because when God gave the commandments and this man, this young man would have known that, that the, the goal was, it's not like a batting average. You know, the goal was to keep all of the commandments to which no one can do, but you certainly wouldn't go to a rabbi, a wise teacher and say, you know, I think I got room in my life today for three of the 10, you know, which three you think I should go for, you know? Uh, you, would, you would want to know all the commandments. And if he was going to lie, which he was lying, you know, uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have asked which ones. And Jesus said, you know, Jesus started giving him a list. Well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, well, all these I have kept. All these I have kept. Five five stars. You know, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? So think about this for just a second again. So curious to me that, you know, the Ten Commandments, so there's 10 commandments. The the five of the commandments have to do with our vertical relationship with God, with keeping God in his right place, being commanded to do that, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what the first five are about. The second five are about the the horizontal relationships in our life. The person seated next to you or four or five seats over from you, you know, That part of your life is what the second five are about. Which ones did Jesus name? Only the horizontal ones, not the vertical ones. Because I think at this point, Jesus had decided, okay, this has all been fun and games until now. But I know what your problem is. Your problem is this. You know, you think if you get this, you think that if you get this squared away, then you don't have to worry about this. In your life. And to a good God whose love endures forever, it's a package deal. Jesus never separated out. In fact, in the Shema in the Old Testament, and then Jesus repeated in the New Testament, he says, I'll tell you what, I'll summarize for you all of the commandments. And they're found in these two statements love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, in these two statements are contained all of the commandments. It's always a package deal with God. And so if you're sideways with your brother, sister, best friend, roommate, spouse, coworker, whatever, whatever, You are not straight with God if you're sideways with them. Bible says that, not my advice to you. The Bible says that. And so what are we to do about that? And so this young man, rich young ruler that he was, Jesus was looking into his life, realizing this part of your life is out of whack. It may be how he got so rich in the first place. Who knows? And so Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you what. Do this go and take all that you have, sell all that you have, if you want to be perfect, all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And let me pause just a second and say, so what Jesus was asking him to do here and suggesting he do is not just a simple, easy thing. It's hard to give away a lot of money. How would I know? I don't know. But it's hard to give away. But I've talked to people who would know. In fact, you know, in Bill and Melinda Gates have a foundation where they're trying to give away a lot of money. And if you go to Seattle, they've got an entire building, a huge building, and hundreds of people who work for them, to just try to figure out how to give away a lot of money. As admirable as it is that they're doing that, and it is admirable, and they're, they're amazing people, they've yet to take my call. But besides that, um, I have talked to people who work in that, for them, very closely for them, and have, and have told me how difficult it is to give away a lot of money. Because it turns out if you give away a lot of money inappropriately, it ends in disaster. In one word, I can explain this to you, lottery, right? Have you ever read about the, how many lottery winners became really successful? How many lottery winners went on to cure cancer, you know, or establish uh, burn units on in children's hospital? I mean... Most of the time, you just dump a lot of money on someone and it runs their life worse than it was before. And Jesus was saying to this young man, not go dump all your stuff on poor people. This was a call for the rest of his life. He knew it would take him the rest of his life to distribute that money to the poor. He was calling him to a ministry, not a deed. Because of the rest, the next part of that. And he said, and then come. While you're doing that, that's what the language indicates here. While you're doing that, distributing this to the poor, turns out I, Jesus, that's who I'm here for. I came for the poor. And so we can work, I can help you with this. While you're doing this, come, follow me. He was inviting him to be number 13, you know, to come and join the discipleship band, you know, with all the other followers. He was inviting him in to something amazing, but the young ruler could not see past all of the stuff that he had, and it blocked him. From seeing the amazing invitation. And therefore he could not be delivered from that. Jesus was trying to offer him deliverance. And he couldn't receive it because his hands were full. And so he missed it. And so the gospel writer says the young man went away sad. Because he had a lot of stuff. And so he didn 't get delivered, and those there are stories though in the New Testament as well of people that Jesus made this same invitation to who did get delivered by holding on loosely to what they had you know Lydia, who was a very wealthy woman, and really we you know the New Testament church God cho- i 'm not going to say it wouldn't have existed but Without Lydia, you know, using her home and her resources, Paul would not have had a church at Philippi. And you can find story after story. Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus would not have had a tomb if that rich man had not opened up his hands and been delivered from that so that he could come and follow Jesus. That's a deliverance that we can say his love endures forever. He will deliver us from ever, forever as a result of that. And then I have to move quickly to this last one. So the last one, the last stanza in this psalm is one of destination. God's people were on their way to a destination, to a promised land. And They will get there, but it's a long story and a lot happens along the way. And there is this period where they are taken again into captivity. And again, don't have time to unpack all this for you. But they are taken into captivity in Babylon. But then, uh, King, uh, in about 538 B.C., they were allowed to go back to just a small part of their promised land to, to Judah and they go back there. But when they get back there, um, it's, it's out of control. It's a mess. The temple is in disrepair. The leaders are all corrupt. The people are all frustrated with one another. You know, the, uh, God, has, God is um, frustrated with them. And they get back and, and they realize they're not in charge of anything. You know, this once was their land. They were in charge of it. They're back in the land, but someone else is in charge of them and in charge of the land. And the people are frustrated, and they're frustrated with God. And so God sends a messenger named Malachi. Malachi is, is a preacher to a very disgruntled congregation there in that little part of, of the promised land. And God begins to speak to his people in this book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And in this book, there are essentially six disputes that are that God has with his people. And he both convicts them, he confronts them in the first 3, he convicts them in the last 3, and you can read it if you want to. It's not an encouraging read, but it's a true read. Because it starts, Malachi starts with God simply saying to them, you know I have loved you, and you know I still do. That's how it starts. That's the first message. Well, if you hear that from God and you're his people, you know, it seems like you'd want to at least pause and think, yeah, I remember that song, Psalm 136 and you have been good to us you know your love in fact endures forever but they don't do that they respond with well how have you how have you loved us tell me one way you've loved us you know that's how they respond have you ever experienced that have you ever been around someone who does that you know like i I was going to use an example but i won't um We all have. We've we've had people, we say, listen, I really care about you. How how have you cared about me? You don't care about me. You don't even know me. How have you cared about me? And we do that, you know, it's easy to get into these loops of, you know, well, it was yesterday you did care about me, but today things aren't going so well, so I'm not sure you do care about me. And it's easy to get into that loop with God and say, where is God? You know, what about that Hurricane Michael? Where was God when that happened? You know, what about that in Indonesia? Where was God? I don't see God, I don't see his love enduring forever there. Or, and you could go on and on and on. I mean, and those things are legitimate questions. And it all comes back to where's your, where are we gonna put our confidence? It's not a new question. In your worship guide, there's a great statement by Niebuhr that you can read that he was writing those words about who we put our confidence in. He was writing those words back at a very difficult time in, in, our, in this country just before World War II when things looked very bleak then. And he was saying it depends on who you put your confidence in. We can say that same thing now. So that was going on and Malachi was talking to them about this and say, and being God's messenger in the midst of it. And so the people are pushing back on God, said, you, your love is not endured. We haven't seen it. We're not in charge of anything. The temple's in decay. And God would say to them, well, I told, here's what I've told you to do. I've told you to tithe, and you've not done that. And so you're robbing me when you do that. And they're saying, we're not robbing you because you didn't provide for us in the first place. You know, and so God says, well, but I told you to do that because I want to bless you. Well, you didn't, you haven't blessed us. And I mean, it goes back, it's a circular argument that that God at the end of the book just puts an end to it and then doesn't speak to him for 400 years. Not a pleasant ending to this. But tucked right in the middle of it, I told you all that bad stuff to tell you one good thing, that's tucked right in the middle of Malachi that I really love. Because there were people, even in the midst of that disgruntled congregation, there were people that just kept talking about God. And in fact, in Malachi 3.16, it says that then those who feared the Lord, they spoke to one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And it goes on, just for the sake of time, I'd like to just, if we can jump to the message translation of this. Eugene Peterson has translated these same words with these words. Then those whose lives honored God, they got together and talked it over. And God saw what they were doing and listened in. (laughs) Think about that. When we get together like this and we talk about God, God leans in. He's listening. He's listening to what we say about Him And about the people he loves. And then, you know, I love, Peterson says, and and they took minutes of the meeting. God said, "Get, get the book out here, the book of remembrance, and take minutes. Write down what's going on here. Now, do you think God wanted them to write that down because he would forget? No, God doesn't forget. There's only one thing God forgets. The Bible says that God forgets. And you know what that is? our sin. He remembers it no more once we have confessed it and repented of it. He remembers it no more. But he never forgets this. And so, we're still talking about it today in October of 2018. We're still talking about this little group of people Everybody else is fussing and fighting about procedure and structure and what they're up against. And this one little group of people gets together and says, let's talk about God. Let's lean into each other and talk about God, who he is, what he's done, and know that God's going to take note of that.